as all of us know, there are many things in our lives uh, that require maintenance, maintenance, uh, perhaps more things than we would uh, prefer. Uh, the clothes that we wear, the dishes that we use to eat on, they all have to be repeatedly cleaned and washed again and again uh, in order to be useful. Uh, every time we have the oil changed in our car or simply stop at the gas station to fill up the tank again, we are doing a simple work of maintenance in order to carry out a greater uh, purpose. Uh, some of the most meni- menial tasks in life Uh, Brushing our teeth, taking out the trash, shopping for food. They're all necessary works of maintenance for life, for cleanliness, for health. And while we may argue and see that some of these works of maintenance may not seem all that significant, there are works of maintenance that are not only of tremendous worth, but there are those which God has ordained at the heart of which is the work of maintaining the ministry of the church, of Jesus Christ. Maintaining the ministry. And among the ordained means that God has given to supply and to support the church, there is one in particular which is the focus of our attention uh, this morning. As we prepare to uh, ordain and install David Embry to the office of deacon, Uh, Just following the preaching of God's word, uh, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 6, a foundational text on the very formation of the diaconal ministry, uh, which is a ministry of service. It's a ministry of help in maintaining the church of Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Listen now to God's word. Acts 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In this text here in Acts 6, um, which serves really as a as something foundational for the beginning of the diaconate ministry in the New Testament, there's two initial expressions that come to mind about the ministry uh, within the household of faith. The first expression is every member a minister. Perhaps you have heard that expression. 
That is, every member of the body of Christ is called and gifted by Christ to serve the body. So that what we see developing here in Acts chapter 6 with the apostles, the twelve, and then the deacons, the seven men called, will continue to develop in the life of the New Testament church to the point that Paul will come and say in 1 Corinthians 12 that every member has a function, a a part to play, and a place to belong. Uh, Paul uses the metaphor of the physical body to communicate that truth. We might think in considering the metaphor of our physical body that there are seemingly insignificant parts to it until you do something like stub your toe and you realize just how significant that part of uh, that body part has in balance and in uh, the functioning of the whole uh, body. Indeed, some are feet and some are hands, some are the mouthpiece, others are the eyes. And part of the point there is that there are not those who produce ministry and those who are mere consumers of ministry. Rather, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, God gave some to be apostles, others teachers, evangelists, pastors, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. Different functions, but every member a servant. The second expression is that the church is both an organization and an organism. Both of those ideas come right here from uh, Acts chapter 6. By way of organization, we consider what's happening here. You have the mention of the twelve. Those are the apostles in verse 2. Their ministry is centered on the word of God and prayer, a ministry that's going to be taken up later centrally by the elders. You also have in this narrative the summoning of the whole congregation, all of the disciples together at large. And then you have this election taking place and and an ordination, the laying on of hands of these seven men, these deacons. This all points to the organizational, ecclesiastical aspect of the church. But the church is not only an organization. It is also an organism. It is a living organism. Notice in verse 1 and 7, which serve as the bookends to this story or this instance, Something similar is mentioned in verse 1. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, increasing in number, there is a growing number of disciples, those claiming Christ as Lord. And then in verse 7, it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Uh, The church is an organism. It it, it is growing. It changes. It takes new form by way of ministries. It is something living and dynamic. The church is not static. It may feel like it's static at times, but it is not. And one of the dynamics clearly in the early church that they faced was radical growth spurts. Uh, In the wake of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 50 days uh, after Passover and the Lord's crucifixion and resurrection, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And we read in Acts 2 verse 41, those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
Later, in Acts 4, verse 5, in response to the preaching of Peter and John, we read, quote, those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000, 3,000 to 5,000. I, I recall, I must say, years ago at a presbytery meeting, I may have mentioned this in a time past, that a pastoral candidate was being examined uh, for ordination, and he was asked this question. It was a practical question. How would you define success in mission? How would you define success in evangelism? It's a great question. I think the questioner was looking for some kind of response like, well, success in evangelism is faithfulness. Uh, Success in evangelism is being diligent in in loving one's uh, neighbor, something like that. But his response to the question of what is success in evangelism was literally like 3,000 on one day, uh, 5,000 another. Now, the Presbytery broke up because I don't think in Presbyterian circles uh, we're used to that kind of a response. It was a number response. Well, with growth like that comes challenges, and you see one of the challenges begin to develop here in the early church. And the challenge is a diversity of needs. As the disciples are increasing in numbers, we're told in verse 1, what happens? A complaint arises. A complaint arises by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, The church here in Jerusalem is comprised of both Hellenists and Hebrews. The Hellenists being Jews who spoke Greek. Greek-speaking Jews who attended Greek-speaking synagogues. Uh, They were those who comprised the lands of the surrounding Mediterranean as a result of the dispersion and the historic exile. These are Greek-speaking Jews. Then you have the Hebrews. They are Palestinian Jews living within Palestine, speaking Aramaic, attending likely synagogues which spoke Hebrew, similar to Aramaic. And while they had lingual differences and very likely social and cultural differences as well, they find themselves among one body through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an important point about the early church that what united them and what is to unite us is not culture. Uh, It wasn't ethnicity. Uh, It wasn't mere economic standing. In fact, where the gospel is truly flourishing, you see the preeminence of Jesus Christ and one's primary identity in him, life in him, above cultural, ethnic, economic differences. This is who I am in Jesus Christ, and that takes primacy in our identity and unity. But it's not so simple. The first verse communicates, it seems to me, two things that occur not only in the early church, but in every local church since and in every immediate family. One, neglect. Neglect happens. And two, complaint. And when those things occur, often division may not be far away. Likely, uh, given that the Hebrew, the Palestinian Jews, 
were not fluent in Greek, there's oversight. There's an oversight, perhaps unintentional neglect, toward the Hellenist widows. Here, the whole church is contributing to a common general fund. Allocations are going out to the poorer and more vulnerable members. Complaints begin to surface. One group is being favored over another. Let's not miss the fact that even the apostles, those uniquely called by Christ, those specially equipped to launch the early church, those who had spent considerable time day after day with the perfect model of ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ, they themselves experienced a falling short, a neglecting of certain persons in the church. If the early church, under the leadership of Christ's apostles, experienced neglect, the church today should not be shocked or surprised by the weakness or the limitations of any leadership. But notice also this important fact. The apostles by themselves, in and of themselves, did not have the capacity to meet all the diversity of needs that were taking place in the church. We heard Exodus 17 read earlier. It is like Moses, who in fighting against the Amalekites experienced victory as long as his hands were held up with the staff of God, held up high. But when he lowered his hands, they experienced defeat. And then the text says, Moses' hands grew Weary. And Aaron and her came and held up his hands. Moses needed help. His hands needed to be held. The apostles needed help. They needed additional hands to extend mercy. And what's the remedy? Not so much a programmatic thing, it's not a program that's the remedy. Knowing the wisdom of God and the purposes of God, the remedy are godly men, godly servants. And you can sense in this passage the familial tone here. The church as a whole is facing a challenge. There's neglect. There's complaint. We're told in verse 2, the 12, what did they do? They summoned the full number of the disciples gathering the congregation together, the people of God together. They say, pick out seven men, elect seven men of good repute to serve tables, to extend compassion. And verse 5 says, what they said pleased the whole congregation. You have the apostles involved. The congregation as a whole is summoned. Men are elected a functioning body. And what are they elected for? To care for those vulnerable, neglected, poor, needy. So that we see in the development early on of the office of deacon a very strong emphasis upon mercy and compassion. Here they're called to engage those in need with provision, food, goods. And isn't there something wonderful and beautiful here in Acts 6 that reflects the person and the ministry of Christ. What did Jesus do when he began his ministry? Matthew tells us, Mark tells us, he he began preaching 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus began doing. He came with a ministry of the word. But then what happened when the hungry crowds gathered around him? Or the sick, or the deaf, or the paralytic brought to him? He ministered to them. He healed. He comforted. He extended compassion. When the diversity of needs arose, the apostles did not say, well, every man for himself. Or people need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. No, the apostles had witnessed. They had seen Jesus in his own ministry. They had witnessed him in the ministry of his word and deed. So it seems that early on, uh, the church was not only being formed as a fellowship, but people who share a mutual faith, uh, share in one worship, and even in friendship. The church was being formed as a community also of hospitality. Hospitality. Fellowship is good, it is biblical, it is necessary. But hospitality at times takes a step further. To share not only in one faith, in one doctrine, one hope, but to share food, bread, provision, my heart. To step into the life of another person. To mourn with those who mourn. To be compassionate. Perhaps central to the formation and the calling of the diaconate are the kind of men chosen. The need that arose was physical. But the remedy is to call spirit-filled men. Verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and so on. These are faith-filled, godly men. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, an important text, uh, as Paul provides the qualifications for first elders and overseers, at the end... In verse 8, he says this, uh, in transitioning, deacons likewise. Likewise, there is a connecting word providing a strong link between the characteristics of the elders just mentioned and that of the deacons. Uh, Deacons, like elders, are to shepherd, Paul says, manage their households well. They're not to be double-tongued. That is, they're to be honest in their speech. They're to be dignified. They're to have a consistent uh, godliness. Paul says they're to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is language of Paul that he uses elsewhere, meaning they are to have a good grasp of God's purposes in salvation. They know the gospel. They love the gospel. They're living in God's purposes in salvation. And I must say, what a blessing it is for us as a congregation to have such godly men as deacons. And uh, David is being added this day, not only to a group of godly men, but I was thinking he's being added to six active deacons, so he'll make up the seventh, just like the text. We've got seven here. While the deacons are not required in Scripture to be able to teach a distinct characteristic of the elders and overseers. Yet, what do we see in the life of Stephen? 
The first one named and called. Latter part of chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7, Stephen not only speaks forth the word with power, he does so in the face of opposition. And he's willing to bear the cost in doing so. Stephen becoming the first martyr, stoned to death. His final words in the face of an enraged crowd, Behold the glory of God. I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, this is the cost of service of Christ. And yet it's the blessing to see the Lord Jesus, this one crucified, risen, ascended. He's seated at the right hand of God, and yet the one who, who humbled himself became obedient even unto death. And so we read in verse 6 that those seven men were set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. An act of ordaining, setting one apart for an office, for the work which lies ahead. And all of this, all of this is contributing even to a greater end. In verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. The word of God, the gospel of Christ increased. It took effect not merely because it was being proclaimed, but because the body was functioning as it ought, as the whole family of God. And uh, as David has responded uh, to a call of God in his life, uh, may we be encouraged uh, to serve Christ and his body in the calling that God has given to each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, how we do thank you for uh, the glorious body of Christ, how you have instituted and created and shaped her, how you dwell within uh, the members of the body and how you give life to us not only individually, but as, as a body together, each member playing its part, carrying out its work, seeing the work of your Spirit building us up. Lord, we thank you for your providence and your wisdom and counsel and to see the unfolding and development of the early church. We thank you, Lord, for the office of deacon. We pray that you would Bless now, Lord, um, the ordination and the installation of David Embry as we consider that here before uh, this, the body of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.